Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love and Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Well, well, well. Here we finally are. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, here with the final reading of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This has been an utterly wild ride, and honestly, I am in awe uh, that it has taken so long to get through the whole thing. Uh, I know it's my own fault at the beginning. We were doing them in two episodes, and then it was so much smarter to do them in one episode, and oh my gosh. In any case, we are at the end of Ovid. Wow. When I first started doing these readings, it was entirely on a whim, and frankly, it was just something to pass the time like, during the very beginning of COVID, like when I briefly was not working my old regular job and just kind of bored and looking for more things to do with the podcast. Like, I just started reading Homer's Iliad, because why not? And the rest is some kind of history of me sharing with you all some of the most beautiful and fascinating ancient sources from Greece and sometimes Rome, because, you know, sometimes they were cool. Uh, it is it's one of my favorite things to record, even if I try to limit them to just like once or twice a month, 
But I'm honestly just so thrilled that you all enjoy these episodes. Like I hear from you now and then of just like how nice it is to hear that. It's like a chill thing to listen to. You get to listen to this ancient source. I think it's just a really unique and important piece of understanding the ancient world. Like just to hear these sources directly, even if the translations I often have to read are a bit stuffy, to say the least. It's just hearing them straight out is so different from hearing them interpreted through somebody else. Not that the translations aren't also interpretations. Regardless, my point stands. But, well, like, here we are, finally, about to dive into the final book of Ovid's Metamorphoses, where, frankly, things get even weirder and very Roman and, like, oddly historical or probably more, like, his- like pseudo-historical, because uh, I'm pretty sure Julius Caesar is a god of some kind. But we started this and we're going to finish it. Now, for all this bit does also devolve into some, like, weird Romanness, we get this enormous section that is about Pythagoras, ostensibly. I don't know enough of the real Pythagoras, and I I don't believe most of this. It is still Ovid, like, 600 years later. But the name Pythagoras isn't given, but it's wild. There's a lot about vegetarianism. Seems chill. Then there's a lot of absolutely hilarious stuff. Anyway, I I think you're going to love it, actually. I was worried that this would be too much Rome, but gods, this bit is weird. And so I would love to know what you all would like me to read next. Um, And with the help of a wonderful feature from Spotify that I really wish Apple would mimic in some way, I get to ask all of you what you want to hear, provided you're listening on Spotify. If you're not, I'm sorry. It's just the limitations of the apps. I might you know, uh, put up a poll on Instagram. Basically, I am still kind of working through what this is going to look like because I'm having trouble finding translations that I am able to read or more likely having trouble finding the deaths of certain translators and therefore whether I can read them. It's a whole thing. Um, I'm working on it. Uh, At the end of the episode, though, you will get some more information about what exactly I want from you via the Spotify ability. Hopefully it's nice and detailed. And remember, there are just a few days left to get your questions in for the New Year's Q&A. Is there a character that you desperately want to know more about or are curious why I've never done an episode on them and you just want to yell it at me? Like, write it in. I will explain and that will be helpful to both of us. Do you want to know more about ancient sources or the intricacies of literally anything when it comes to Greek myth because God's damn is it intricate? Write it in. I also just love to hear your comments or thoughts on the characters, books, literally whatever you want to share send it in. There is a link in this episode's description or head to mythsbaby.com slash questions. This is Ovid's Metamorphoses, translated by Brooks Moore, Book 15. While this was happening, they began to seek for one who could endure the weight of such a task and could succeed a king so great, and fame the harbinger of truth destined illustrious Numa for the sovereign power. It did not satisfy his heart to know only the Sabine ceremonials, and he conceived in his expansive mind much greater views, examining the depth and cause of things. 
His country and his cares forgotten, this desire led him to visit the city that once welcomed Hercules. Numa desired to know what founder built a Grecian city on Italian shores. One of the old inhabitants, who was well acquainted with past history, replied, Rich in Iberian herds, the son of Jove turned from the ocean, and with favoring wind, it said he landed on Lacinian shores. And while the herd strayed in the tender grass, he visited the house, the friendly home of far-famed Croton. There he rested from his arduous labors. At the time of his departure, he said, Here in future days shall be a city of your numerous race. The passing years have proved the promise true, for Miskelis, choosing that site, marked out a city's walls. Argive Alamon's son, of all the men in his generation, he was most acceptable to the heavenly gods. Bending over him once at dawn, while he was overwhelmed with drowsiness of sleep, the huge club-bearer, Hercules, addressed him thus. Come now, desert your native shores, go quickly to the pebbly, flowing stream of distant Isar. And he threatened, ill in fearful words, unless he should obey. Sleep and the god departed instantly. Alamon's son, arising from his couch, pondered his recent vision thoughtfully with his conclusions at cross-purposes. The god commanded him to quit that land and the laws forbade departure, threatening death to all who sought to leave their native land. The brilliant sun had hidden in the sea his shining head, and darkest night had then put forth her starry face, and at that time it seemed as if the same god, Hercules, was present and repeating his commands, threatening still more and graver penalties if he should fail to obey. Now, sore afraid, he set about to move his household gods to a new settlement, but rumors then followed him through the city, and he was accused of holding statutes in contempt. The accusation hardly had been made when his offense was evidently proved, even without a witness. Then he raised his face and hands up to the gods above and suppliant in neglected garb, exclaimed, O mighty Hercules, for whom alone the twice six labors gave the privilege of heavenly residence, give me your aid, for you were the true cause of my offense. It was an ancient custom of that land to vote with chosen pebbles, white and black. The white absolved, the black condemned the man. And so that day the fateful votes were given. All cast into the cruel urn were black. Soon as that urn inverted poured forth all the pebbles to be counted, every one was changed completely from its black to white, and so the vote adjudged him innocent. By that most fortunate aid of Hercules, he was exempted from the country's law. Miskelis, breathing thanks to Hercules, with favoring wind, sailed on the Ionian Sea, past Salentine, Noretum, Sibaris, Spartan Tarentum, and the Cyrene Bay. Cremissa, and on beyond the Apigian fields. Then, skirting shores which faced these lands, he found the place foretold the river Isar's mouth, and found not far away a burial mound which covered with its soil the hallowed bones of Croton. There, upon the appointed land, he built up walls, and he conferred the name of Croton, who was there entombed, on his new city, which has ever since been called Crotona. 
By tradition, it is known such strange deeds caused that city to be built by men of Greece upon the Italian coast. Here lived a man by birth a Samian. He had fled from Samos and the ruling class, a voluntary exile, for his hate against all tyranny. He had the gift of holding mental converse with the gods, who live far distant in the height of heaven, and all that nature has denied to man and human vision he reviewed with eyes of his enlightened soul. And when he had examined all things in his careful mind with watchful study, he released his thoughts to knowledge of the public. He would speak to crowds of people, silent and amazed, while he revealed to them the origin of this vast universe, the cause of things, what is nature, what a god, whence came the snow, the cause of lightning. Was it Jupiter, or did the winds that thundered when the cloud was rent asunder cause the lightning flash? What shook the earth? What laws controlled the stars as they were moved? And every hidden thing, he was the first man to forbid the use of any animal's flesh as human food. He was the first to speak with learned lips, though not believed in this, exhorting them, No, mortals, he would say, do not permit pollution of your bodies with such food, for there are grain and good fruits which bear down the branches by their weight, and ripened grapes upon the vine, and herbs, those sweet by nature, and those with which grow tender and mellow with a fire, and flowing milk is not denied, nor honey, redolent of blooming thyme. The lavish earth yields rich and healthful foods, affording dainties without slaughter, death, and bloodshed. Dull beasts delight to satisfy their hunger with torn flesh, and yet not all. Horses and sheep and cattle live on grass. But all the savage animals, the fierce Armenian tigers and ferocious lions and bears, together with the roving wolves, delight in viands reeking with warm blood. Oh, ponder a moment such a monstrous crime, vitals in vitals gorged, one greedy body fattening with plunder of another's flesh, a living being fed on another's life. In that abundance which our earth, the best of mothers, will afford have you no joy, unless your savage teeth can gnaw the piteous flesh of some flayed animal to reenact the cyclopean crime? And can you not appease the hungry void, the perverted craving of a stomach's greed, unless you first destroy another's life? That age of old time, which is given the name Golden, was so blessed in fruit of trees and in the good herbs which the earth produced that it never would pollute the mouth with blood. The birds then safely moved their wings in air, the timid hares would wander in the fields with no fear, and their own credulity had not suspended fishes from the hook. All life was safe from treacherous wiles, fearing no injury, a peaceful world. After that time, some one of ill advice, it does not matter who it might have been, envied the ways of lions and gulped into his greedy paunch stuff from a carcass vile. He opened the foul paths of wickedness. It may be that in killing beasts of prey, our steel was for the first time warmed with blood, and that could be defended, for I hold that predatory creatures which attempt destruction of mankind are put to death without evasion of the sacred laws. But, though with justice they are put to death, that cannot be a cause for eating them. This wickedness went further, and the sow was thought to have deserved death as the first of victims, 
for with her long, turned-up snout she spoiled the good hope of a harvest year. The ravenous goat that gnawed on a sprouting vine was led for slaughter to the altar fires of angry Bacchus. It was their own fault that surely caused their ruin of those two. But why have sheep deserved sad destiny, harmless and useful for the good of man with nectar in full udders? Their soft wool affords the warmest coverings for our use. Their life and not their death would help us more. Why have the oxen of the field deserved a sad end, innocent without deceit and harmless without guile, born to endure hard labor? Without gratitude is he, unworthy of the gift of harvest fields, who, after he relieved his worker from weight of the curving plow, would butcher him, could sever with an axe that toil-worn neck? by which so often with hard work the ground has been turned up, so many harvests reared? For some, even crimes like these are not enough. They have imputed to the gods themselves abomination. They believe a god in heaven above rejoices at the death of a laborious ox? A victim free of blemish and most beautiful in form, perfection brings destruction. Is adorned with garlands and with gilded horns before the altar— In his ignorance he hears one praying, and he sees the very grain he labored to produce, fixed on his head between the horns, and felled. He stains with blood the knife which just before he may have seen reflected in clear water. Instantly they snatch out entrails from his throbbing form and seek in them intentions of the gods. Then, in your lust for a forbidden food, you will presume to batten on his flesh. O race of mortals, do not eat such food. Give your attention to my serious words, and when you next present the slaughtered flesh of oxen to your palates, know and feel that you gnaw on your fellow tillers of the soil. And, since a god impels me to speak out, I will obey the god who urges me, and will disclose to you the heavens above, and I will even reveal the oracles of the divine will. I will sing to you of things most wonderful, which never were investigated by the intellects of ancient times, and things which have been long concealed from man. In fancy I delight to float among the stars, or take my stand on mighty Atlas's shoulders, and to look afar down on men wandering here and there, afraid in life, yet dreading unknown death, and in these words exhort them, and reveal the sequence of events ordained by fate. O sad humanity, why do you fear alarms of icy death, afraid of sticks, fearful of moving shadows and empty names, of subjects harped on by the poet's tales, the fabled perils of a fancied life? Whether the funeral pile consumes your flesh with hot flames, or old age dissolves it with a gradual wasting power, be well assured the body cannot meet with further ill and souls are all exempt from power of death. When they have left their first corporeal home, they always find and live in newer homes. I can declare, for I remember well, that in the days of the great Trojan War, I was Euphorbus, son of Panthus. In my opposing breast was planted then the heavy spear point of the younger son of Atreus, Not long past, I recognized the shield, once burden of my left arm, where it hung in Juno's temple at ancient Argos, the realm of Abbas. Everything must change, but nothing perishes. 
The moving soul may wander, coming from that spot to this, from this to that, in changed possession live in any limbs whatever. It may pass from beasts to human bodies and again to those of beasts. The soul will never die in the long lapse of time. As pliant wax is moulded to new forms and does not stay as it has been, nor keep the self-same form, yet is the self-same wax. Be well assured the soul is always the same spirit, though it passes into different forms. Therefore, that natural love may not be vanquished by unnatural craving of the appetite, I warn you, stop expelling kindred souls by deeds abhorrent as cold murder. Let not blood be nourished with its kindred blood. Since I am launched into the open sea and I have given my full sails to the wind, nothing in all the world remains unchanged. All things are in a state of flux. All shapes receive a changing nature. Time itself glides on with constant motion, ever as a flowing river. Neither river nor the fleeting hour can stop its constant course, but as each wave drives on a wave, as each is pressed by that which follows, and that press on that before it, so the moments fly, and others follow, so they are renewed. The moment which moved on before is past, and that which was not now exists in time, and every one comes, goes, and is replaced." You see how night glides by and then proceeds on to the dawn, then brilliant light of day succeeds the dark night. There is not the same appearance in the heavens. When all things for weariness are resting in vast night, as when bright Lucifer rides his white steed, and only think of that most glorious change when Loved Aurora, Pallas's daughter, comes before the day and tints the world almost delivered to bright Phoebus, even the disk of that god rising from beneath the earth is of a ruddy color in the dawn and ruddy when concealed beneath the world. When highest, it is a most brilliant white, for there the ether is quite purified and far away avoids infection from impurities of earth. Diana's form at night remains not equal nor the same. Tis less today than it will be tomorrow if she is waxing, greater if she wanes. Yes, do you not see how the year moves through four seasons, imitating human life? In early spring, it has a nursling's ways resembling infancy, for at that time the blade is shooting and devoid of strength. Its flaccid substance swelling gives delight to every watching husbandman, alive in expectation. Then all things are rich in blossom, and the genial meadow smiles with tints of blooming flowers. But not as yet is there a sign of vigor in the leaves. The year now waxing stronger, after spring it passes into summer, and its youth becomes robust. Indeed, of all the year, the summer is most vigorous and most abounds with glowing and life-giving warmth. Autumn then follows, and the vim of life removed, that ripe and mellow time succeeds between youth and old age, and a few white hairs are sprinkled here and there upon his brow. Then aged winter with his tremulous step follows, repulsive, strips of graceful locks or white with those he has retained so long. Our bodies also always change unceasingly. We are not now what we were yesterday, or we shall be tomorrow— and there was a time when we were only seeds of man, 
mere hopes that lived within a mother's womb. But nature changed us with her skillful touch, determined that our bodies should not be held in such narrow room, below the entrails in our distended parent, and in time she brought us forth into the vacant air. Brought into light, the helpless infant lies. Then on all fours he lifts his body up, feeling his way like any young wild beast, and then by slow degrees he stands upright, weak-kneed and trembling, steadied by support of some convenient prop. And soon more strong and swift he passes through the hours of youth, and when the years of middle age are past, slides down the steep path of declining age. This undermines him and destroys the strength of former years, and Milan, now grow old, weeps when he sees his arms, which once were firm with muscles big as those of Hercules, hang flabby at his side, and Helen weeps when in the glass she sees her wrinkled face and wonders why two heroes fell in love and carried her away. O time, devourer of all things, and envious age, together you destroy all that exists, and slowly gnawing, bring on lingering death. Yes, even things which we call elements do not endure. Now listen well to me, and I will show the ways in which they change. The everlasting universe contains four elemental parts, and two of these are heavy, earth and water, and are borne downwards by weight. The other two, devoid of weight, are air, and even lighter, fire. And if these two are not constrained, they seek the higher regions. These four elements, though far apart in space, are all derived from one another. Earth dissolves as flowing water, water thinned still more, departs as wind and air, and the light air, still losing weight, sparkles on high as fire. But they return along their former way, the fire, assuming weight, is changed to air, and then, more dense, that air is changed again to water, and that water, still more dense, compacts itself again as primal earth. Nothing retains the form that seems its own, and nature, the renewer of all things, continually changes every form into some other shape. Believe my word, in all this universe of vast extent, not one thing ever perished. All changed appearance... Men say a certain thing is born if it takes a different form from what it had, and yet they say that certain thing has died if it no longer keeps the self-same shape. Though distant things move near and near things far, always the sum of all things is unchanged. For my part, I cannot believe a thing remains long under the same form unchanged. Look at the change of times from gold to iron. Look at the change in places. I have seen what had been solid earth become salt waves, and I have seen dry land made from the deep, and far away from ocean, seashells strewn, and on the mountaintops old anchors found. Water has made that which was once a plain into a valley, and the mountains have been leveled by the floods down to a plain. A former marshland is now parched dry sand, and places which endured severest drought are wet with standing pools. Here nature has opened fresh springs, and there has shut them up. Rivers aroused by ancient earthquakes have rushed out or vanished as they lost their depth. 
So when the Lycus had been swallowed by a chasm in the earth, it rushes forth at a distance and is reborn a different stream. The Erasinus now flows down into a cave, now runs beneath the ground a darkened course, then rises lordly in the Argolic fields. They say the Mesus, wearied of his spring and of his former banks, appears elsewhere and takes another name, the Caicus. The Amanonis in Sicilian sands, now smoothly rolling, at another time is quenched because its fountain's springs are dry. The water of the Anagros formerly was used for drinking, but it pours out now foul water, which you would decline to touch, because, unless all credit is denied to poets, long ago the centaurs, those strange mortals double-limbed, bathed in the stream wounds which club-bearing Hercules had made with his strong bow— Yes, does not Hypanus, descending fresh from mountains of Sarmatia, become embittered with the taste of salt? Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50. And it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. 
That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Antissa, Pharos, and Phoenician Tyr were once surrounded by the wavy sea. They are not islands now. Long years ago, Lucas was mainland, if we can believe what the old-timers there will tell. But now the waves sweep round it. Zankli was a part of Italy until the sea cut off the neighboring land with strong waves in between. Should you see Calique and Buris, those two cities of Achaea, you will find them underneath the waves, where sailors point to sloping roofs and streets in the clear deep. Near Pythian Treason, a steep, high hill quite bare of trees, was once a level plain, but now is a hill, for, dreadful even to tell, the raging power of winds, long pent in deep, dark caverns, tried to find a proper vent— long struggling to attain free sky. Finding no opening from the prison caves imperious to their force, they raised the earth, exactly as pent air breathed from the mouth inflates a bladder, or the bottle hides stripped off the two-horned goats. The swollen earth remained on that spot and has ever since appearance of a high hill hardened by the flight of time. Of many strange events that I have heard and known, I will add a few. Why does not water give and take strange forms? Your wave, O horned Ammon, will turn cold at midday, but is always mild and warm at sunrise and at sunset. I have heard that Athamanians kindle wood if they pour water on it when the waning moon has shrunk away into her smallest orb— the people of Kikonia have a stream which turns the drinker's entrails into stone, which changes into marble all it raves. The Achaean Krathis and the Sibaris, which flow not far from here, will turn the hair to something like clear amber or bright gold. What is more wonderful, there are some waters which change not only bodies but the minds. Who has no knowledge of the Salmacus and of its ill-famed waves? Who has not heard of the lakes of Ethiopia, how those who drink of them go raving mad or fall in a deep sleep, most wonderful in heaviness? Whoever quenches thirst from the Clitorian spring will hate all wine and soberly secure great pleasure from pure water. Either that spring has a power the opposite of wine heat, or perhaps, as natives tell us, 
after the famed son of Emethion, by his charms and herbs, delivered from their base insanity, the stricken Pratides, he threw the rest of his mind-healing herbs into the spring, where hatred of all wine has since remained. Unlike in nature flows another stream of the country called Lincestius. Everyone who drinks of it, even with most temperate care, will reel as if he had drunk unmixed wine. In Arcadia is a place called Phineos by men of old, which is mistrusted for the twofold nature of its waters. Stand in dread of them at night. If drunk at night, they harm you, but in daytime they will do no harm at all. So lakes and rivers have now this, now that effect. Ortigia once moved like a ship that drifts among the waves. Now it is fixed. The Argo was in dread of the Simplegades, which moved apart with waves in rushing. Now immovable, they stand, resisting the attack of winds. Etna, which burns with sulfur furnaces, will not be always concentrated fire, nor was it always fiery. If the earth is like an animal and is alive and breathes out flame at many openings, then it can change these many passages used for its breathing, and when it is moved, may close these caverns as it opens up some others. Or if rushing winds are penned in deepest caverns, and they drive great stones against the rock, and substances which have the properties of flame and fire are made by those concussions, when the winds are calmed, the caverns will, of course, be cool again. Or if some black bitumen catches fire or yellow sulfur burns with little smoke, then surely when the ground no longer gives such food and oily nutriment for flames, and they in time have ravined all their store, their greedy nature soon will pine with death. It will not bear such famine, but depart, and when deserted, will desert the place. Tis said that the Hyperboreans of Pallini can cover all their bodies with light plumes by plunging nine times in Minerva's marsh. But I cannot believe another tale, that, that Scythian women get a like result by having poison sprinkled on their limbs. If we give any credit to the things proved by experience, we can surely know whatever bodies are decayed by time or by dissolving heat are by such means changed into tiny animals. Come now, bury choice bullocks killed for sacrifice, and it is well known by experience that the flower-gathering bees are so produced, miraculous, from entrails putrefied. These, like the faithful animals from which they were produced, inhabit the green fields, delight in toil, and labor for reward. The warlike steed, when buried in the ground, is a known source of hornets. If you cut the bending claws off from the seashore crab and bury the remainder in the earth, a scorpion will come forth from the dead crab buried there, threatening with its crooked tail. The worms, which cover leaves with their white threads, a thing observable by husbandmen, will change themselves to funeral butterflies. Mud holds the seeds that generate green frogs, at first producing tadpoles with no feet, and soon it gives them legs adapted for their swimming, and so they may be as well adapted to good leaping. Their hind legs are longer than the forelegs. The mother bear does not bring forth a cub, but a limp mass of flesh that hardly can be called alive. By licking it, the mother forms the limbs and brings it to a shape just like her own. 
Do not the offspring of the honeybees, concealed in cells hexagonal, at first get life with no limbs, and assume in time both feet and wings? Unless the fact were known, could anyone suppose it possible that Juno's bird, whose tail is bright with stars, the eagle, armor-bearer of high Jove, the, the doves of Cytheria, and all birds emerge from the middle part of eggs? And some believe the human marrow turns into a serpent when the spine at length has putrefied in the closed sepulchre. Now these I named derive their origin from other living forms. There is one bird which reproduces and renews itself. The Assyrians gave this bird his name, the phoenix. He does not live either on grain or herbs, but only on small drops of frankincense and juices of a momum. When this bird completes a full five centuries of life, straightway with talons and with shining beak, he builds a nest among palm branches, where they join to form the palm tree's waving top. As soon as he is strewn in this new nest, the cassia bark and the ears of sweet spikenard, and some bruised cinnamon with yellow myrrh, he lies down on it and refuses life among those dreamful odors. And they say that from the body of the dying bird is reproduced a little phoenix, which is destined to live just as many years. When time has given to him sufficient strength and he is able to sustain the weight, he lifts the nest up from the lofty tree and dutifully carries from that place his cradle and the parent's sepulchre. As soon as he is reached through yielding air the city of Hyperion, he will lay the burden just before the sacred doors within the temple of Hyperion. But if we wonder at strange things like these, we ought to wonder also when we learn that a hyena has a change of sex. The female, quitting her embracing male, herself becomes a male. That animal which feeds upon the winds and air at once assumes with contact any color touched. Conquered India gave to the vine-crowned Bacchus lynxes, whose urine turns, they say, to stones, hardening in air. So coral, too, as soon as it has risen above the sea, turns hard. Below the waves it is a tender plant. The day will fail me, Phoebus, will have bathed his panting horses in the deep-sea waves, before I can include in my discourse the myriad things transforming to new shapes. In lapse of time, we see the nations change. Some grow in power, some wane. Troy was once great in riches and in men, so great she could for ten unequaled years afford much blood. Now she lies low and offers to our gaze but ancient ruins and, instead of wealth, ancestral tombs. Sparta was famous once, and great Mycenae with, was most flourishing, and Cecrops' citadel and Amphion's shone in ancient power. Sparta is nothing now, save barren ground. The proud Mycenae fell. What is the Thebes of storied Oedipus except a name? And of Pandion's Athens, what now remains beyond the name? Reports come to me that Dardanian Rome is rising, and beside the Tiber's waves, whose springs are high in the Apennines, is laying her deep foundations. So in her growth her form is changing, and one day she will be the sole mistress of the boundless world. They say that soothsayers and that oracles, revealers of our destiny, declare this fate, and if I recollect it right, Helenus, son of Priam, prophesied unto Aeneas, 
when he was in doubt of safety and lamenting for the state of Troy, about to fall, O son of a goddess, if you yourself will fully understand this prophecy now surging in my mind, Troy shall not, while you are preserved to life, fall utterly. Flames and the sword shall give you passage. You shall go and bear away Pergama, ruined, till a foreign soil, more friendly to you than your native land, shall be the lot of Troy and of yourself. Even now I know it is decreed by fate that our posterity, born far from Troy, will build a city greater than exists, or ever will exist, or ever has been seen in former times. Through a, a long lapse of ages, other noted men shall make it strong, but one of the race of Ulysses shall make it the great mistress of the world. After the earth has thoroughly enjoyed his glorious life, ethereal abodes shall gain him, and immortal heaven shall be his destiny. Such was the prophecy of Hellenus when great Aeneas took away his guardian deities, and I rejoice to see my kindred walls rise high and realize how much the Trojans won by that resounding victory of the Greeks. But that we may not range afar with steeds forgetful of the goal, the heavens and all beneath them and the earth and everything upon it change in form, we likewise change, who are a portion of the universe, and since we are not only things of flesh, but winged souls as well, we may be doomed to enter into beasts as our own abode, and even to be hidden in the breasts of cattle. Therefore, should we not allow these bodies to be safe, which may contain the souls of parents, brothers, or of those allied to us by kinship, or of men at least who should be saved from every harm? Let us not gorge down a Thyestean feast. How greatly does a man disgrace himself? How impiously does he prepare himself for shedding human blood, who, with the knife, cuts the calf's throat and offers a deaf ear to its death longings? Who can kill the kid while it is sending forth heart-rending cries like those of a dear child? Or who can feed upon the bird which he has given food? How little do such deeds as these fall short of actual murder? Yes, where will they lead? Let the ox plough, or let him owe his death to weight of years, and let the sheep give us defence against the cold of Boreas. And let the well-fed she-goats give to man their udders for the pressure of kind hands. Away with cruel nets, and springs, and snares, and fraudulent contrivances— Deceive not birds with bird-limed twigs. Do not deceive the trusting deer with dreaded feather foils. Do not conceal barbed hooks with treacherous bait. If any beast is harmful, take his life. But even so, let killing be enough. Taste not his flesh, but look for harmless food. They say that Numa, with a mind well taught by these and other precepts, travelled back to his own land and, being urged again, assumed the guidance of the Latin state. Blessed with a nymph as consort, blessed also with the muses for his guides, he taught the rites of sacrifice and, trained in arts of peace, a race accustomed long to savage war. When, ripe in years, he ended reign and life, the Latin matrons, the fathers of the state, and all the people wept for Numa's death. 
for the nymph, his widow, had withdrawn from Rome, concealed within the thick groves of the Vale Aricia, where with groans and wailing she disturbed the holy rites of Cynthia, established by Orestes. Ah, how often nymphs of the grove and lake entreated her to cease and offered her consoling words. How often the son of Theseus said to her, Control your sorrow, surely your sad lot is not the only one. Consider now the like calamities by others born, and you can bear your sorrow. To my grief, my own disaster was far worse than yours. At least it can afford you comfort now. Is it not true, discourse has reached yours ears, that one Hippolytus met with his death through the credulity of his loved sire, deceived by a stepmother's wicked art? It will amaze you much, and I may fail to prove what I declare, but I am he. Long since the daughter of Pasiphae tempt me to defile my father's bed, and failing, feigned that I had wished to do what she herself had wished, perverting truth either through fear of some discovery or else through spite at her deserved repulse, she charged me with attempting the foul crime. Though I was guiltless of all wrong, my father banished me, and while I was departing, laid on me a mortal curse. Towards Pythias and treason, I fled aghast, guiding the swift chariot near the shore of the Corinthian Gulf, when all at once the sea rose up and seemed to arch itself and lift high as a white-topped mountain height, make bellowings and open at the crest. Then through the parting waves, a horned bull emerged with head and breast into the wind, spouting white foam from his nostrils and his mouth. The hearts of my attendants quailed with fear, yet I, unfrightened, thought but of my exile. Then my fierce horses turned their necks to face the waters, and with ears erect they quaked before the monster shape. They dashed in flight along the rock-strewn ground below the cliff. I struggled, but with unavailing hand, to use the reins now covered with white foam, and throwing myself back, pulled on the thongs with weight and strength. Such effort might have checked the madness of my steeds had not a wheel, striking the hub and a projecting stump, been shattered and hurled in fragments from the axle. I was thrown forward from my chariot and with the reins entwined about my legs. My palpitating entrails could be seen dragged on, my sinews fastened on a stump. My torn legs followed, but a part remained behind me, caught by various snags. The breaking bones gave out a crackling noise. My tortured spirit soon had fled away. No part of the torn body could be known. All that was left was only one crushed wound. How can, how dare you, nymph, compare your ills to my disaster? I saw the lower world deprived of light, and I have bathed my flesh so tortured in the waves of Phlegathon. Life could not have been given to me, but through the remedies Apollo's son applied to me. After my life returned by potent herbs and the Peonian aid, despite the will of Pluto, Cynthia then threw heavy clouds around that I might not be seen and cause men envy by new life, and that she might be sure my life was safe, she made me seem an old man, and she changed me so that I could not be recognized. A long time she debated whether she would give me Crete or Delos as my home, 
Delos and Creed abandoned, she then brought me here, and at the same time ordered me to lay aside my former name, one which, when mentioned, would remind me of my steeds. She said to me, you were Hippolytus, but now instead you shall be Verbius. And from that time I have inhabited this grove, and as one of the lesser gods I live concealed and numbered in her train. The grief of others could not ease the woe of sad Egeria, and she laid herself down at a mountain's foot, dissolved in tears, till moved by pity for her faithful sorrow, Diana changed her body to a spring, her limbs into a clear, continual stream. This wonderful event surprised the nymphs and filled Hippolytus with wonder, just as great as when the Etrurian plowman saw a fate-revealing clod move of its own accord among the fields, while not a hand was touching it, till finally it took human form without the quality of clotted earth and opened its new mouth and spoke, revealing future destinies. The natives called him Tagis. He was the first who taught Etrurians to foretell events. They were astonished, even as Romulus, when he observed the spear, which once had grown high on the Palatine, put out new leaves and stand with roots, not with the iron point which he had driven in. Not as a spear, it then stood there, but as a rooted tree with limber twigs for many to admire while resting under the surprising shade— or as when Kippus first observed his horns in the clear stream, he truly saw them there. Believing he had seen a falsity, he often touched his forehead with his hand, and so returning, touched the thing he saw. Assured at last that he could trust his eyes, he stood entranced, as if he had returned victorious from the conquest of his foes, and raising eyes and hands towards heaven... He cried, You gods above, whatever is foretold by this great prodigy, if it means good, then let it be auspicious to my land and to the inhabitants of the Quirinus. If ill, let that misfortune fall on me. He made an offering at new altars, built of grassy, thick, green turf with fragrant fires, presenting wine in bowls, and he took note of panting entrails from new slaughtered sheep to learn the meaning of the event for him. When an Etruscan seer examined them, he found the evidence of great events as yet obscure, and when he raised keen eyes up from the entrails to the horns of Kippus, O king, all hail, he cried, for in future time this country and the Latin towers will live in homage to you, Kippus, and your horns. But you must promptly put aside delay, hasten to enter the wide open gates, the fates command you. Once received within the city, you shall be its chosen king and safely shall enjoy a lasting reign. Kippus retreated, and he turned his grave eyes from the city's walls and said, O oh, far, O oh, far away, the righteous gods should drive such omens from me. Better it would be that I should pass my life in exile than be seen a king throned in the capital. Such words he spoke, and forthwith he convoked the people and the grave and honored senate, but first he veiled his horns with laurel, which betokens peace. Then, standing on a mound raised by the valiant troops, he made a prayer after the ancient mode, and then he said, There is one here who will be a king. If you do not expel him from your city, I will show him to you surely by a sign, although I will not tell his name. He wears horns on his head. 
The augur prophesies that if he enters this your city, he will give you laws as if you were his slaves. He might have forced his way within your gates, for they stand open, but I have hindered him, although nobody is to see him so close as I myself. Good Romans, then forbid your city to this man, or, if you find that he deserves still worse, then bind him fast with heavy fetters, or else end your fears by knowledge of the destined tyrant's death. As murmurs which arise among the groves of pine trees thick above us, when the fierce east wind is whistling in them, or as sound produced by breaking waves, when it is heard afar off, such the noise made by the crowd. But in that angry stirring of the throng, one cry could be distinguished. Which is he? And they examined the foreheads, and they sought predicted horns. Kippus then spoke again. The man whom you demand, he said, is here. And fearless of the people, he threw back the chaplet from his forehead, and so that all could see his temples plainly, wonderful for their two horns. All then turned down their eyes and uttered groans, and, was it possible? They looked unwillingly upon that head famed for its merit. They could not permit him to remain there long, deprived of honors, and they placed upon his head the festive chaplet. And the senate gave you, Kippus, since you never more must come within the walls, a proof of their esteem. So much land as your oxen and their plow could circle round from dawn to setting sun. Moreover, they engraved the shapely horns on the bronze pillars of the city gate, which for long ages kept his name revered. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and logic. 
Love & Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love & Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love & Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Relate, O oh muses, guardian deities of poets, for you know, and the remote antiquity conceals it not from you. The reason why an island, which the deep stream of Tiber closed about, has introduced Coronus's child among the deities guarding the city of famed Romulus. A dire contagion had infested long the Latin air, and men's pale bodies were deformed by a consumption that dried up the blood. When, frightened by so many deaths, they found all mortal efforts could avail them nothing, and physicians' skill had no effect, they sought the aid of heaven. They sent envoys to Delphi, center of the world, and they entreated Phoebus to give aid in their distress, and by response renew their wasting lives and end a city's woe. While ground and laurels and the quivers which the god hung there all shook, the tripod gave this answer from the deep recesses hidden within the shrine, and stirred with trembling their astonished hearts. What are you seeking here, O Romans? You should seek for nearer you. Then seek it nearer, for you do not need Apollo to relieve your wasting plague. You need Apollo's son. Go then to him with a good omen and invite his aid. After the prudent senate had received Phoebus Apollo's words, they took much pains to learn what town the son of Phoebus might inhabit. They dispatched ambassadors under full sail to the coast of Epidaurus. When the curved ships had touched the shore, these men in haste went to the Grecian elders there and prayed that Rome might have the deity whose presence would drive out the mortal ill from their Ausonian nation, for they knew response, unerring, had directed them. 
The councillors, dismayed, could not agree on their reply. Some thought that aid ought not to be refused, but many more held back, declaring it was wise to keep the god for their own safety and not give away a guardian deity. And while they talked, discussing it, the twilight had expelled the waning day and darkness on the earth spread a thick mantle over the wide world. Then in your sleep, the healing deity appeared. O Roman leader, by your couch, as in his temple he is used to stand, holding in his left hand a rustic staff. Stroking his long beard with his right, he seemed to utter from his kindly breast these words. Forget your fears, for I will come to you and leave my altar, but now well look at the serpent with its binding folds entwined around this staff, and accurately mark it with your eyes that you may recognize it. I will transform myself into this shape, but of a greater size. I will appear enlarged and of a magnitude to which a heavenly being ought to be transformed." The god departed when he said these words, and sleep went when the god and words were gone, and genial light came when the sleep had left. The morning then dispersed fire-given stars. The envoys met together in much doubt within the temple of the long-sought god. They prayed the god to indicate for them, by clear celestial tokens, in what spot he wished to dwell. Scarce had they ceased the prayer for guidance when the god, all glittering with gold and as a serpent, crest erect, sent forth a hissing as to notify a quick approach, and in his coming shook his statue and the altars and the doors, the marble pavement and the gilded roof. Then up to his breast the serpent stood erect with the temple. He gazed on all with eyes that sparkled fire. The waiting multitude was frightened, but the priest, his chaste hair bound with a white fillet, knew the deity. Behold the god, he cried. It is the god. Think holy thoughts and walk in silent reverence, all who are present. Oh, most beautiful, let us behold you to our benefit and give aid to this people that performs your sacred rites. All present then adorned the deity as bidden by the priest, the multitude repeated his good words, and the descendants of Aeneas gave good omen, with their feelings and their speech. Nodding well pleased and moving his great crest, the god at once assured them of his favor, and hissed repeatedly with darting tongue. And then he gilded down the polished steps, turned back his head, and, ready to depart, gazed on the altars he had known for so long a last salute to the temple of his love. While all the people strewed his way with flowers, the great snake wound in sinuous course along and, passing through the middle of their town, came to the harbor and its curving wall. He stopped there, and it seemed that he dismissed his train and dutiful attendant crowd, and with a placid countenance he placed his mighty body in the Ausonian ship, which plainly showed the great weight of the god. The glad descendants of Aeneas all rejoiced, and they sacrificed a bull beside the harbor, wreathed the ship with flowers, and loosed the twisted hawsers from the shore. As a soft breeze impelled the ship, within her curving stern the god reclined, his coils uprising high, and gazed down on the blue Ionian waves. So wafted by the favoring winds, they came in six days to the shores of Italy. There he was borne past the Lacinian Cape, ennobled by the goddess Juno's shrine, and the Scylacian coasts. 
He left behind Epigia. Then he shunned Amphrysian rocks upon the left, and on the other side escaped Cocynthian crags. He passed nearby Rumecium and Caulon and Nerechia, crossed the Sicilian Sea, went through the strait, sailed by Pelorus and the island home of Aeolus and the copper mines of Temessa. He turned then towards Leucosia and toward mild Pastum, famous for the rose. He coasted by Capriae and around Minerva's promontory and the hills ennobled with Sorrentine vines. From there to Herculaneum and to Stabiae and then Parthenope built for soft ease. He sailed near the Cumaean Sibyl's temple. He passed the warm springs and Liturnum where the mastic trees grow and the river called Volturnus where thick sand whirls in the stream over to Sinuessa's snow-white doves, and then to Antium and its rocky coast. When all the sails full spread, the ship came in the harbor there, for now the seas grew rough. The god uncoiled his folds, and gliding out with sinuous curves and all his mighty length, entered the temple of his parent, where it skirts that yellow shore. But when the sea was calm again, the Epidaurian god, departing from his father's shrine, where he a while had shared the sacred residence reared to a kindred deity, furrowed the sandy shore with weight of crackling scales. Again he climbed into the lofty stern and near the rudder laid his head at rest. There he remained until the vessel passed by Castrum and Lavinium's sacred homes to where the Tiber flows into the sea. There all the people of Rome came rushing out, mothers and fathers and even those who tend your sacred fire, O Trojan goddess Vesta, and joyous shouted welcome to the god. Wherever the swift ship steered through the tide, they built up many altars in a line, so that perfuming frankincense with smoke crackled along the banks on either hand, and victims made the keen knives hot with blood. The serpent deity had entered Rome, the world's new capital, and, lifting up his head above the summit of the mast, looked far and near for a congenial home. The river there, dividing, flows about a place known as the island. On both sides, an equal stream glides past dry middle ground. And here the serpent child of Phoebus left the Roman ship, took his own heavenly form, and brought the morning city health once more. Apollo's son came to us from abroad, but Caesar is a god in his own land. The first in war and peace he rose by wars, which closed in triumph and by civic deeds to glory quickly won. And even more his offspring's love exalted him as a new, a heavenly sign and brightly flaming star. Of all the achievements of great Julius Caesar, not one is more ennobling to his fame than being father of his glorious son. Was it more glorious for him to subdue the Britons guarded by their sheltering sea, or lead his fleet victorious up the stream, seven-mouthed of the papyrus-hearing Nile, to bring beneath the Roman people's rule rebel Numidia? Libyan Juba and strong Pontus, proud of Mithridates' fame, to have some triumphs and deserve far more than to be the father of so great a man, with whom a, as a ruler of the human race, O oh gods, you bless us past all reckoning? 
And lest that son should come from mortal seed, (laughs) Julius Caesar must change and be a god. When the golden mother of Aeneas was aware of this and saw a grievous end plotted against her high priest, saw the armed conspiracy preparing for his death, with pallid face she met each god and said, Look with what might this plot prepares itself against my cause, with how much guile it dooms the head which is the last that I have left from old-time Eulus, prince and heir of Troy. Shall I alone be harassed through all time by fear well-grounded? First, the son of Tydeus must wound me with his Caledonian spear, and then I tremble at the tottering walls of ill-defended Troy. I watch my son, driven in so long wanderings, tossed upon the sea, descending to the realm of silent shades, and waging war with Turnus. Or, if I should speak the truth, with Juno, why do I recall disasters of my race from long ago? The present dread forbids my looking back at ills now past. See how the wicked swords are wetted for the crime. Forbid it now, I pray you, and prevent the deed. Let not the priest's warm blood quench vestal fires. Such words as these, full of her anxious thoughts, Venus proclaimed through all the heavens in vain. The gods were moved, and since they could not break the ancient sisters' iron decree, they gave instead clear portents of approaching woe. It is declared resounding arms heard from the black clouds and unearthly trumpet blasts and clarions heard through all the highest heavens forewarned men of the crime. The sad sun's face gave to the frightened world a livid light and in the night time torches seemed to burn amid the stars and often drops of blood fell in rain showers. Then Lucifer shone blue with all his visage stained by darksome rust. The chariot of the moon was sprinkled with red blood. The Stygian owl gave to the world ill omens. In a thousand places tears were shed by the ivory statues. Dirges, too, are said to have been heard, and threatening words by unknown speakers in the sacred groves. No victim gave an omen of good life. The fibers showed great tumults imminent. The liver's cut-off edge was found among the entrails. In the forum, it is said, and round men's homes and temples of the gods' dogs howled all through the night, and silent shades wandered abroad, and earthquakes shook the city. But portents of the gods could not avert the plots of men and stay approaching fate. Into a temple naked swords were brought, into the senate house. No other place in all our city was considered fit for perpetrating such a dreadful crime. With both hands, Kitharia beat her breast, and in a cloud she strove to hide the last of great Aeneas's line, as in times past she had hid Paris from fierce Menelaus, Aeneas from the blade of Diomedes. But Jove, her father, cautioned her and said, Do you, my daughter, without aid alone, attempt to change the fixed decrees of fate? Unaided, you may enter the abode of the three sisters and can witness there a register of deeds the future brings. These, wrought of brass and solid iron with vast labor, are unchangeable throughout all eternity and have no weakening fears of thundershocks from heaven, nor from the rage of lightnings they are perfectly secure from all destruction. You will surely find the destinies of your descendants there engraved in everlasting adamant. Tis certain I myself have read them there, and I with care have marked them in my mind. I will repeat them so that you may have unerring knowledge of those future days. Venus, the man on whose behalf you are so anxious, already has completed his allotted time. The years are ended which he owed to life on earth. 
You, with his son, who now as heir to his estate must bear the burden of that great government, will cause him, as a deity, to reach the heavens and to be worshipped in the temples here. The valiant son will plan revenge on those who killed his father and will have our aid in all his battles. The defeated walls of scarred mutina, which he will besiege, shall sue for peace. Pharsalia's plain will dread his powers, and Macedonian Philippi be drenched with blood a second time. The name of one acclaimed as great shall be subdued in the Sicilian waves. Then Egypt's queen, wife of the Roman general Antony, shall fall, while vainly trusting in his word, while vainly threatening that our capital must be submissive to Canopus's power. Why should I mention all the barbarous lands and nations east and west by ocean's rim? Whatever habitable earth contains shall bow to him. The sea shall serve his will. With peace established all over the lands, he will then turn his mind to civil rule, and as a prudent legislator will enact wise laws. And he will regulate the manners of his people by his own example. Looking forward to the days of future time and of posterity, he will command the offspring born of his devoted wife to assume the imperial name and the burden of his cares. Nor till his age shall equal Nestor's years will he ascend to heavenly dwellings in his kindred stars. Meanwhile, transform the soul which shall be reft from this doomed body to a starry light, that always godlike Julius may look down in future from his heavenly residence upon our forum and our capital. Jupiter hardly had pronounced these words when kindly Venus, although seen by none, stood in the middle of the senate house and caught from the dying limbs and trunk of her own Caesar his departing soul. She did not give it time so that it could dissolve in air, but bore it quickly up toward all the stars of heaven, and on the way she saw it gleam and blaze and set it free. Above the moon it mounted into heaven, leaving behind a long and fiery trail, and as a star it glittered in the sky. There, wondering at the younger Caesar's deeds, Julius confessed they were superior to all of his, and he rejoiced because his son was greater even than himself. Although the son forbade men to regard his own deeds as the mightier, fame, that moves free and untrammeled by the laws of men, preferred him even against his own desire, and in that one point disobeyed his will. <laughs> And so great Atreus yields to greater fame of Agamemnon, Aegeus yields to Theseus, and Peleus to Achilles, or, to name a parallel befitting these two gods, so Saturn yields to Jove. Now Jupiter rules in high heavens and is the suzerain over the waters and the worlds of shades, and now Augustus rules in all the lands. So each is both a father and a god. Gods who once guarded our Aeneas when both swords and fire gave way. And native gods of Italy and father Quirinus, patron of Rome. And you, Gradivus too, the sire of Quirinus, the invincible. And Vesta, hallowed among Caesar's gods. And Phoebus, over-worshipped at his hearth. And Jupiter, who rules the citadel high on Tarpeia's cliff. And other gods, all gods to whom a poet rightfully and with all piety may make appeal, far be that day, 
postponed beyond our time when great Augustus shall forsake the earth, which he now governs, and mount up to heaven from that far height to hear his people's prayers. And now I have completed a great work, which not Jove's anger and not fire nor steel nor fast-consuming time can sweep away. Whenever it will, let the day come, which has dominion only over this mortal frame, and end for me the uncertain course of life. Yet in my better part I shall be born immortal, far above the stars on high, and mine shall be a name indelible. Wherever Roman power extends her sway over the conquered lands, I shall be read by lips of men. <laughs> if poets' prophecies have any truth, through all the coming years of future ages, I shall live in fame. Oh, was I not prepared uh, to read the ending like that, but it felt only right. That, I love that it's just like, Ovid's Metamorphoses is really just like a big book of Greek myths with just like a little touch of really overt Augustan propaganda there right at the end. I think there's a lot of debate about how Ovid felt about this, like whether he actually thought Augustus was a fucking tool. And I think this shows that he did. I think that sounds like a man who is writing nice things for the man who holds the cards and who can control everything about his life, but also thinks that that man is a fucking dweeb. And it had to be read as such. Augustus was a fucking dweeb. Oh my god, that was that was just truly enjoyable, actually, that propaganda. Just Rome as the world. the w Julius Caesar as a god. <sighs> the idea of Augustus telling everyone not to treat him special, but they do it against his will because he's that great. Anyway, that was, that was a true joy at the end there, actually. Um, that was lovely. Uh, that was all of Ovid's metamorphoses. What a fucking wild ride. That, that end. Oh my God. I'm never getting over that end. <laughs> Whew. Um, so, okay. If, remember, if you're listening on Spotify, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to do it, but vote in whatever, whatever I give you, uh, whatever I make happen. Basically, I'm looking for um, how, multiple options because I want you guys to pick from them. I only found two so far, but I'm hoping to find a third. Um, but for now, next reading is going to just be a one-off, I believe, of Lycophron's Alexandra um, because it's... I don't have time to to see what you guys want before that, but uh, we'll do it. Whatever comes after that will be whatever you pick, hopefully. Um, but Alexandra, aside from being my legal name, um, is a Hellenistic work that tells the stories from Troy and the war. It's really all, a, it begins with a prophecy by Cassandra, uh, which I believe that name is interchangeable with Alexandra, hence the title. Also confusing, though, to call it Alexandra when we call her Cassandra. Odd stuff. Anyway, um, that'll be next. But after that, I would like to hear what you guys want. So the first option is Quintus Smyrnaeus's Fall of Troy. So this would be a really big series, probably 14 episodes. Um, so, you know, that's going to take a while. It's going to be kind of similar to Ovid, though the first 
huge number of books of Ovid we did read in two parts. So it would be a little bit quicker than that, thankfully. Um, It is a very late Roman epic from around the 4th century CE. So a couple, few centuries after Ovid. It is basically our only surviving source for the events after the Iliad, though. Um, You know, the, the whole end of the Trojan War. It is presumably based on an ancient Greek version of the story, but we will never know for sure. Still, this is like, this is the source we have for, you know, Achilles' fight uh, with the Amazons, his death, uh, the death of like a ton of other people in that war, and that old Trojan horse that we all hear so much about. So there's that option. And then there is Pseudo Apollodorus's Library of Greek Mythology. This would only be, I think, four books. Um, it would be it, just straight mythology. That is the source where I like to call it TLD, the TLDR of, of Greek mythology. Someone that wasn't me coined that, and I'm sorry, I forget who it was. It was years ago and on Twitter. But it's so true. It is very succinct mythological details. Um, but it is a lot of stuff that is often not surviving elsewhere. So it's very like quick and to the point, but gets through a ton of mythology in a short space of time. So we have that option. I can also read you the Plutarch's Life of Theseus, maybe. That would only be one episode, but it could be wild. I've not read the whole thing. Um, And if I think of another option before I have to set this poll, maybe there'll be another one. So anyway, pick what you like if you're listening on Spotify and thank you. I just think it's a fun uh, way to test out this function. Let's Talk What Miss Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert, or in this case, the last bazillion episodes of readings, uh, Ovid. Thanks, Ovid. I really think that you thought Augustus was a dweeb, and I respect that. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, my assistant producer. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. I have had to be sadly pretty inactive on that uh, lately due to my entire life exploding around me uh, amongst everything in the world that makes me want to cry, curl up in a ball, and just cry all the time. Um, But there is like probably 100 episodes of back bonus stuff for you to take a listen to if you want to sign up to the Patreon. And eventually, soon, I'll be back. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I want to be clear about the Patreon. Maybe I should add to these uh, uh, end credits. I consider it you helping me with this free podcast. I try to provide as much bonus content as I can, and there is a lot that exists from the past, but I consider it helping me with the free podcast. I am not capable of providing you with a lot of bonus. And so if you're looking for that, I, you don't look elsewhere. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, That's not the great way to end it. I was slightly losing my mind. Thank you all so much for listening. Reading of it has been an absolutely bananas bunkers wild ride and i am so here for it and also excited to move on to something different i am live and i love this shit thank you ovid you're a weird guy and i respect it you've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately well toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 
Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces plus 24 7 customer support his venue never misses a beat call quickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done